Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Following a two-year hiatus because of COVID-19, Martin Luther King commemoration events have commenced once again in the United States, this time in the month of August. Traditionally held in January, Martin Luther King Remembrance Day commemorates and recognises the history of the Black Power Movement. On today's Accent of Women, and continuing next week, we revisit a speech delivered by world-renowned political activist, academic and author, Angela Davis. This event took place on January 23rd, 2020, at the University of New England, as part of its annual Martin Luther King Jr. celebrations. It was one of the last MLK events before lockdown. Also, important context that this event took place before the Capitol riots in 2021 and, of course, before the overturning of Roe v. Wade in 2022. to call attention to the fact that when we observe MLK Day, we not only celebrate the spirit of the civil rights movement, but we celebrate the fact that the declaration of King's birthday as an official holiday, which of course takes place on the third Monday of each January, uh, that this was the outcome of a very long struggle. There was a time when it actually seemed unlikely that we would ever get to set aside a day to reflect on and pay tribute to Dr. King and to all of those who fought a sustained battle to end racial segregation during our country's 20th century freedom movement. The first bill calling for an observance of Dr. King's birthday was submitted in Congress the very same year he was assassinated, in 1968. That bill, and that's an interesting history. Uh, um, Shirley Chisholm, uh, who was the first black woman elected to Congress, uh, submitted this bill over and over and over again. Finally, in 1983, the bill was signed, and the first celebration took place in 1986. But it wasn't until the year 2000, 19 years ago, that all states observed observed the holiday. In the meantime, of course, Stevie Wonder wrote and performed Happy Birthday. which has become the official happy birthday song in many households, especially in the black community. Six million people signed petitions that were submitted by Coretta Scott King. The NFL moved the Super Bowl one year from Phoenix to Pasadena because Arizona refused to recognize MLK Day and a boycott of Arizona was called. There are precedents to Colin Kaepernick's stance, and there are precedents to boycotting states and governments, uh, I might say. 
Now, at least once a year, we collectively reflect on the meaning of the historical challenges to racism and their relationship to ongoing struggles against racism and other persisting forms of oppression. So I'm very happy to join you as you engage in this collective reflection. You all know that MLK Day does not simply focus on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his individual accomplishments. MLK Day is about a movement, the black freedom movement that challenged many forms of racism, primarily in the South, but also called for a more holistic, um, today we might say intersectional understanding of the nature of racism. This movement led to a deeper consciousness of other forms of oppression and discrimination as well. One of my favorite passages from Dr. King's writing comes from a lecture he gave in Canada some months before he was assassinated. If you want to find it, it is in the collection of um, lectures entitled Trumpet of Conscience. But let me share it with you. The first man to die in the American Revolution was a Negro seaman, Crispus Attucks. Before that fateful struggle ended, the institution of absolute monarchy was laid on its deathbed. We may now be in only the initial period of an era of change, as far-reaching in its consequences as the American Revolution. The developed industrial nations of the world cannot remain secure islands of prosperity in a seething sea of poverty. The storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth from which there is no shelter in isolation and armament. The storm will not abate until a just distribution of the fruits of the earth enables man everywhere to live in dignity and human decency. And the last sentence of this passage, the American Negro of 1967, like Crispus Attucks, may be the vanguard of a profound prolonged struggle that may change the shape of the world as billions of deprived shake and transform the earth in their quest for life, freedom, and justice. And I use this passage as a preface to remarks that will revolve around uh, the fact that we are witnessing throughout this country and throughout the world 
a major uprising of women. In the 21st century, and we're already two decades into the 21st century, I can remember when 1984 represented the future. <laughs> but in this 21st century, we have finally begun to recognize the leadership of women. Social movements like Black Lives Matter are led by women, black women and queer women. There are more women in Congress now than ever before, including, including the first Palestinian-American woman elected to the House of Representatives. We have finally begun to acknowledge the centrality of what were once marginalized as women's issues and thus not worthy of general consideration. And so this morning I want to talk about the various connections uh, between racist violence and gender violence. And I want to begin by recalling that my very first childhood memories are the explosive sounds of, 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 of racist bombings um, of um, a house across the street uh, uh, from where my family lived. And in my memory, I also recall a late night knock on our front door by a woman who was fleeing a man whom I later found out had raped her. In elementary school, I remember whispered conversations about a classmate and friend who had been the target of sexual assault. And I distinctly remember questioning in my own mind why she was assumed to be responsible for that act of sexual violence. Some years later, Emmett Till was lynched because of a putatively sexualized comment to a white woman in the town of Money, Mississippi. And in 1963, the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed, claiming the lives of four beautiful black girls who were just beginning to explore the possibilities of their lives. The movement against gender violence in this country is frequently periodized in connection with the 1966 founding of the National Organization of Women and the creation within now of a task force on rape. I certainly uh, do not want to minimize the important work that now has done over the years. Uh, um, and I don't want to undermine the eventual, the importance of the eventual emergence of an anti-rape 
an anti-violence movement um, uh, that reflected uh, uh, the work that um, women associated with organizations like NOW uh, perform. But I want to trouble the way we think about the emergence of the movement against gender violence. Um, you might say, I want to trouble that genealogy. Um, with genealogies, one all, always chooses a point that is established as the beginning. And oftentimes it's rather arbitrary. If one looks at the genealogy of the anti-violence movement, one can question why the work against sexual violence associated with the civil rights movement, the Southern Black Freedom Movement, came to be so marginalized that it took many years of research and activism to recognize um, that Rosa Parks was one of the pioneers of that work. And of course, um, Rosa Parks is recognized as a great figure in the history of this country, but largely only for uh, refusing to move when she was told to move to the back of the bus. Uh, uh, and as uh, the legend would have it, she was very tired that day. When she was alive, she made the point that she was not tired at all. <laughs> and she also liked to say that she was um, represented as a tired old woman who didn't feel like getting up. She says, I definitely wasn't tired and I was not old. <laughs> she was in her 40s, early 40s. Uh, um. Now, I want to say a few words about Rosa Parks. Um, she was involved in, in the 1930s in the movement to free the Scottsboro Nine. Are you familiar with the case of the Scottsboro Nine? Um, interestingly, my mother was also involved in that campaign. Um, and I learned about it when I was very young. Uh, but these were nine young black men who were fraudulently charged uh, with uh, raping a um, white woman. There's a lot of literature available on it if you're interested in pursuing it uh, f further. Um, but um, she was one of the major, she and her husband uh, were major activists, uh, and they had to raise money in secret at that time. Uh, uh, she uh, remembers that, quote, black men could not hold meetings without fear of bodily injury and death. Uh, uh, now, later, when a carload of white men in a town called Abbeville, Alabama, um, gang raped a 
black woman by the name of Risi Taylor. Um, the NAACP sent Rosa Parks, she was uh, one of the leaders of the NAACP in Montgomery, she was sent to investigate uh, uh, that act and to help build a movement. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, this was um, probably the first um, campaign uh, of its sort. Uh, it was characterized by the Chicago Defender as the strongest campaign for equal justice in a decade. Uh, and what's interesting is that the Montgomery Improvement Association, which became the organization responsible for coordinating uh, the 1955 boycott in Montgomery, grew out of that, that, that effort. Uh, um, but the question I'd like you to ask is, um, why we don't see the relevance of that work to struggles against gender violence more broadly. Um, uh, and why were white women anti-rape activists reluctant to acknowledge how important it might have been early on to cultivate a political consciousness that linked rape to racism. In this context, I would like to um, share with you a passage from, um, written in 1972, from a letter written in 1972 by Anne Braden, uh, uh, who was a white anti-racist activist in the South, uh, and one of my own mentors. Uh, in 1972, she wrote a letter to white Southern women. Um, it was in connection with the case of a young man by the name of Thomas Wansley, who had been, like the Scottsboro Nine, um, several decades before, who had been fraudulently, um, falsely charged with, with rape. Uh, Anne Braden, always envisioned a strong and powerful multiracial women's movement. Um, and she wrote, we haven't been able to develop that kind of strength because of the deep chasm that divides white women from black in our society a chasm created by crimes committed in the name of white womanhood. It may seem paradoxical, she wrote, but in this racist society, we who are white will overcome our oppression as women only when we reject once and for all the privileges conferred on us by our white skin. For the privileges are not real. They are a device through which we are kept under control. We can make 
a beginning toward building a really strong women's movement as we openly reject and fight racist myths that have kept us divided. We can begin by joining with our black sisters in a campaign to free Thomas Wansley and go on from there to free others and ourselves. As many scholars and activists have pointed out, existing social hierarchies have determined who gets to be a legitimate survivor of gender violence? Who gets to represent those who constitute legitimate um, victims? Beth Ritchie, who is a um, scholar activist, a sociologist, um, has written about the every woman. <coughs> the every woman who peoples our imaginaries when we think about the possible eruption of gender violence. And she has pointed out that this every woman is actually a racialized construction. Racialized as white. Why is it so difficult to posit black women women of color as exemplary? And this is a question that Tarana Burke asks. And as you know, um, she was the original creator of Me Too, uh, but who gets credit for it? So my questions are about the connections we make the experiences of women of color are rich and generative, but why are they considered experiences that relate only to communities of color? Perhaps if it had not been assumed that we had to work with the most general of categories, and perhaps if racist categories were not already presume to be general or internalized within a presumption of generality. Uh, we might have recognized the value of holding on to the specific and the particular. I think this is the lesson that the Black Lives Matter movement has been trying to impart a century and a half after this insight should have become a part of our history. And, and when I say that, uh, I'm referring to the fact that uh, uh, there have been many controversies surrounding the slogan, Black Lives Matter. And as you know, there have been many who've said that we shouldn't say Black Lives Matter, we should say Exactly, all lives matter. As if there, as if all lives matter is in opposition to Black Lives Matter. And as if we are denied the opportunity to recognize that, the, that democracy in this country is based on 
the presumption of a few standing in for the many. Uh, all people are created equal, but who's really created equal? Perhaps one can say all men are created equal, because we know that women were excluded from the very beginning, right? Um, but then we know that uh, not all men were included, so perhaps we could say, well, all white men um, are created equal, but then we know that the reference is not even to all white men. Uh, it, it, it actually is only to um, affluent white men. So from the very beginning, our presumptions of, 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 of generality that are um, inscribed in the Constitution actually refer to a very small minority. But on the other hand, we all know that if ever black lives were to truly matter in the world, that would be a sign that finally all lives matter. That was world-renowned political activist, academic and author, Angela Davis, speaking at the University of New England as a part of its annual Martin Luther King Jr. celebrations back in 2020. We'll continue the broadcast of this speech on Accent of Women next week. And that's all we have time for on today's program. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. Thanks for tuning into the show. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.